know why I'm so passionate about music to code by? Because it works. I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you who sail effortlessly through hours of coding. There's only one problem. They can't get enough. Well, not only are we up to track 13, but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price. The collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago, still only a little more than 4 bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only 3 bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1371, with guest Immo Landworth. Recorded Friday, October 21st, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, Emma Landworth is here. We're going to be having a great conversation about uh, uh, the .NET and .NET platform, .NET standard, all that stuff. And uh, how are you doing, my friend? I'm well. You know, uh, this will be the show, I think, Charles, during the MVP Summit. So, we'll be, I'll be bombing around. At least I think you're staying home this time around. But it's yeah. conference season again. So, yep. we're doing that bit of a pre-record. We're getting a little further ahead. But uh, it's all good. I'm sh- I sure had a good time in Vegas. I, I bet you did. I, I think. <laughs> I think I did. All right. That was I, amazing. I have something really cool for uh, Better Know Framework today. So roll the crazy music. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? .NET Fiddle.net. What the heck is .NET Fiddle? All right. So D-O-T-N-E-T Fiddle.net. Like .NET Rocks, only different. That's right. It's Fiddle for .NET. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, so I have, you, a, I have an editor window in front of me. That's right. You have you can write little console apps or actually scripts or MVC apps or Nancy apps in C sharp and VBnet and F sharp, and you wow. can pick uh, whether you want to target .NET four five for C sharp, Roslyn one point RC one. Yeah, it's it's kind of cool. It's like Visual Studio Lite on the Neat. web. That's very light. Very it's in my light. browser. That's about as light as it gets. Yeah. You're not going to be calling into any uh, uh, system.speech.recognition or anything like that, I don't think. But it does have a save option, so yeah. that's cool. You could keep this going for a while. Yeah, you save fiddles and you pass them around. That's really interesting. Cool. Fine. Share and collaborate and tidy up. <laughs> Neat. Yeah. So there you go. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1349, the one we did with Jeff Fritz when we talked about how he's currently running the ASP.NET Web Forms team. Back in September of 2016. Yeah. And uh, so it brought a little bit of angry, but Jeff was right there to comment back and uh, had some conversation. This is comment from, boy, I'm going to trash this name. Uh, let's say Ludwig Sion. Okay. I'll go with that. I think it's Dutch, maybe Danish, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but his comment is, I finally listened to this episode. It's great to hear that there is still a web forms person at Microsoft web forms team. 
Ludwig. Mm. Uh, however, as someone who bought into the whole one ASP.net and the Lego pieces are the right format message, the recent fork of ASP.net core leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Uh-oh. Allow me to explain. I help run two largest web forms projects. We have a lot of legacy, but we're trying to modernize and keep up with modern developments. We're using model binding, web API for services, TypeScript, NPM, all that client-side stuff. Mm-hmm. We even uh, worked on our share of Razor templates between web forms controls and MVC pages so we could gradually move stuff over. Cool. Okay. But then the fork happened, and suddenly all the Lego pieces didn't fit together anymore. Yeah. Web API and MVC moved on to the new world, and web forms stayed behind. Yep. There is no apparent way for me to use the new unified Web API and MVC Lego pieces with my old Web Forms pieces. Hmm. It's just frustrating that after years of hearing just use Web Forms and MVC and Web API in one project, I'm now stuck with MVC five and Web API two with no way to upgrade. And I'd love to hear Microsoft address this so I know what to do with my applications over the next ten years. Hmm. And Jeff addressed this square on, but here's the summary. Nobody said. You can't run ASP.NET Core alongside regular ASP.NET. Mm-hmm. There's no reason you can't. You know, you absolutely can. It's not so, a one and, or the other. And his concern, of course, is that he wants the new versions of Web API and MVC, which are only, quote, only with Core. And he says, that, you know, those, Jeff said, these are not actually next versions. They're just the versions in Core. Right. Both, both the traditional, quote, traditional, I don't even know what to call it, framework yeah, and the core framework are getting new versions of everything. Everything's still going on. So he could move over to core for all his MVC stuff and web API stuff if he wants and have his web form stuff run, still running against the main framework. It'll work. Hmm. There's no reason you can't do that. And it, it didn't occur to me until I saw this conversation on our forum to go, huh? Hmm. Yeah, of course you could. Yep. You know, that doesn't, doesn't actually matter. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Totally up to you. Sure. Uh, so, Ludwig, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media. Because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We run them on the .NET Core. <laughs> I don't know. That's all I got. All right, so let me introduce uh, Imo Landworth. Uh, Imo is working as a program manager at Microsoft on the .NET platform. This includes the base class libraries, the portability mechanisms, and open source. Welcome, Imo. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. I noticed you say portability mechanisms. You didn't say portable class libraries. That's right, because we now have multiple ways to achieve the same thing. And uh, portable class libraries was the first mechanism that we had. And now with .NET Standard, we have uh, another mechanism. And we believe a much better mechanism, actually, than what portable class libraries was. Yeah, so as I understand it, portable class libraries give you the lowest common denominator of common uh, APIs that uh, can go on a variety of platforms, and as you check off more platforms, that list of APIs gets smaller and smaller, whereas the .NET standard is saying, okay, here's what, if you want to support .NET standard VX, you know, you have to support all the following APIs, right? Correct. Yeah, the the, the key difference is that, um, I mean, the lowest common denominator was not necessarily something that, that happens in portable class libraries. That was mostly a result of 
how we did portability because we in, in the early days of .NET, we didn't really care about portability. Mm -hmm. And then my team basically said, well, it would be nice if you could author a class library that would run on multiple platforms. And then we basically invented portable class libraries. But because no platform was buying into that yet, we could only essentially model what the platforms happen to implement. Yeah. And so as a side effect, essentially, if you really build the lowest common denominator, then, you know, you can only use what's truly everywhere. But uh, in the early days of Portable, this would have been literally nothing. I mean, you could use strings and collections maybe, but right, network, right, yeah. for example, would be already impossible to share. And so we actually ended up with this uh, multiple Venn diagram problem where, you know, all these platforms are essentially circles. And then in Portable, when you check off those platforms, we essentially, you know, do the computation uh, to see what overlap there is. And that's the APIs you can use. So it's technically not the lowest common denominator, but it's basically... Uh, you know, what you can actually share between the platforms you are checking, but it becomes this multi-dimensional problem so that people can no longer reason about this. The tool on our side gets very complicated. And in the end, what really matters is we want the platforms to actually buy into the portability mechanism. And that's where the .NET standard kicks in because we basically say, no, here's a list of APIs that we expect you guys to implement. You don't get to redesign what string looks like. You don't get to redesign what list of T looks like. And, um, you know, we have a simple version mechanism for the .NET standard, which is, you know, normal versioning, as opposed to, you know, the Venn diagram overlap in PCL, where you have multiple different profiles, which do not have a versioning relationship, obviously, right? Because they're just, you know, circles that are overlapping. And so right. it's impossible to reason about what's, uh, what's, uh, what's actually available. And with .NET standard, it's pretty simple because it's basically, uh, you know, from a targeting standpoint, when you actually create a class library, you're essentially targeting something like a platform, except that the standard is a synthetic platform, right. and it has a version number, and uh, the higher the version number is, the more APIs you can use, obviously, and but it also means that the .NET platforms, they implement a certain version of the standard, and so the higher the version number is, usually the fewer platforms have support for that version of the standard. Um, and so that means it's a trade-off between, you know, how many APIs do you need versus how many platforms do you want to run on? And that's right. mutually expressed with a single version number. So is and that, that's a fairly easy way to do to, to actually do that. Okay. So the how do you rev in a particular class of version? So is it just by having the 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 dots change? In other words, if you have version 1.0 of the .NET standard, and then uh, the version of .NET 1 changes. Are you just doing those minor revisions? Yeah, so usually, um, you know, we, we try to follow Semver, which, uh, you know, is semantic versioning, which has rules for, you know, which version numbers should you increment uh, based on which events. And so usually what we will do is we will increment the minor version when we add APIs. Yeah. Um, and uh, so... We have an upcoming version of the standard, which is the 2.0 version of the standard. And usually, uh, when you look at semantic versioning, the idea is that when you do breaking changes, you increment the major version. Yeah. Um, but usually, what also happens is uh, for almost all products, when you do significant changes to something, you know, large scale changes, large scale additions, then it may also be worthwhile to bump the major version number, even if you didn't do any breaking changes. And on our side, we originally 
actually envisioned to do breaking changes between 1.x and 2.0 of the standard, but we received a lot of community feedback around that being almost impossible to reason about if we would do that. Yeah. So we decided to not do that. And uh, so .NET Standard 2.0 will still be 2.0 because we added so many APIs to it and uh, you know we, we changed the way the tooling works and we are actually much more compatible with platforms than the 1.x version was. Um, and so we believe that the 2.0 was still justified. Wow. That's what happens when I ask ML questions. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, uh, I realize now that the portable class libraries make perfect sense as long as you're only trying to be portable between two platforms. Mm. But Correct. yeah, you get this N plus one problem as you start adding more platforms. So you have to turn this thing on its head so that everybody's right. building to a standard so that the increasing number of platforms doesn't make the problem worse. That's right. That's cool. Yeah. And so how is the how is the adoption been? Are you finding that uh people are you're interacting with the community and enjoying the the feedback? How's that interaction been? Yeah, so on our side like .net standard was essentially done at the same time we did .net core. So when the first version of .net core shipped also the first version of .net standard shipped. Mm. And that was basically at the, at the same time where you know, pretty much all of our stack became open source. So the so the uh, overall the community engagement has been incredible because we got so many people to start with us and you know engaging that we didn't talk to before, right? So that's that's a it's a pretty good jump for us. As far as the standard goes, the standard was done fairly late at the end of the .NET Core 1.0 release cycle, mm -hmm. and. Um, when we did it, the, the biggest problem was that .NET Core, if you think about it, .NET Core was a new platform that is a relatively small subset of the existing .NET platforms right. if you compare .NET Core to .NET Framework and the other ones. So the APIs that we could actually share between full framework and .NET Core weren't that big. And as a result, the .NET Standard 1.x also wasn't that big. So when you actually target .NET Standard, it's almost like targeting .NET Core in terms of availability of APIs. So we received a lot of feedback from people that told us that porting their code to core and consequently also to .NET Standard was relatively hard, um, which is why we said, okay, we really need to make the, 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 the platform itself closer to where our, you know, our past was. Right? If you look at Silverlight and uh, .NET Framework mm. and Unity and Xamarin, they, they all are very similar, and .NET Core is the only outlier. So for 2.0, we said, okay, we need to add a bunch of more APIs back. And um, as we started talking about this, you know, many, many more people, you know, whether it's internal or external, started to say, okay, I really want to move to .NET Standard now. Uh, because the only thing that was holding people back in the past was essentially availability of APIs. But we do actively track how many NuGet packages uh, use .NET Standard, and the number is growing significantly. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, we are already, like, almost at the time where we have... I think about the same number of standard packages that we have PCL-based packages, which was portable class libraries. Um, so it, 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 it this it, you know it, it does get a significant uh, uptake and it's still growing. So my, my expectation is that when when we when we release 2.0 uh, for .NET Standard, which will happen when we ship the next version of Visual Studio, um, which we haven't announced the release date for, so yeah. I can't mention when that happens. But uh, the idea is that when that happens, I think the majority of libraries will move to .NET Standard because it will be, it will be look very, very similar to what the .NET framework looks like today when you ignore 
uh, you know, the UI specific components like ASP.NET or WinForms or WPF. Yeah. So every short, every sort of library that you would expect to be able to share with, you know, where you have business logic or some utility library or some networking wrapper or whatever, that you can probably just copy and paste the code over to .NET Send and it would just compile just fine. Right. Are there so any internal what, projects yeah. at Microsoft using .NET Standard? Uh, yes. In fact, like uh, it's not it's not even internal. I mean, a, a good chunk of the, uh, you know, we have a huge chunk of libraries that uh, we give to people in order to access our own product, whether it's, you know, Office or, you know, Visual Studio or Bing or Azure, right? They all have like client-side libraries or some, some other technologies. And if you see a good chunk of them, moving towards .NET Standard because they want to support, you know, they want to continue to support .NET Framework, obviously, yeah. but they also want to support core, but nobody wants to maintain two code bases and .NET Standard gives them the ability to actually do that. So they have a single binary uh, that you can use from both sides and that's uh, very attractive for everybody. Now, the, the Xamarin uh, tool set works a little bit differently, right? It works with shared projects and with PCL. Those are the two options there. Are we going to see a .NET Standard option? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So we we are very working very closely with the Xamarin guys, um, who gave us a bunch of input on how they want this to work. Um, and so when we talk about code sharing, there's really two options, right? One option is you can share source code, and you just compile the source code for every platform you want to run on. Right. And then there is the other option, which is basically what portable class libraries and .NET Standard provide, which is you provide a single binary. And the binary itself is, uh, you know, can be loaded and executed on multiple platforms. Right. They both have pros and cons. The, the the big pro for source sharing is you have more flexibility, right? You can just say, okay, when I'm running on a certain platform, I write, uh, you know, uh, a conditional compilation using pound if, and I can say, if I'm running on this platform, I invoke this particular you know, either operating system API or, or .NET API, which happens to be on that right. platform. Right. Uh, and then, you know, if else, you specialize the other platforms. So that's usually very attractive when you build the applications. So, for example, when you build, let's say, a Twitter client and you want to run on iOS and Android and, you know, Windows Phone, it makes sense to say, you know, I just write if, uh, you know, pound if statements and I just, spe- you know, customize my code to accommodate each of the platforms individually because let's say, you know, iOS and Android have different APIs to get the GPS coordinates, for example. Mm. Right? And so you can just say, when I want to tag my tweet, I just call the appropriate uh, geolocation API. Um, so that's really easy. The downside is you have to specialize every single platform and um, that's a lot of work. Uh, and it doesn't really work for library authors. So if you want to ship your library to the world where you don't know which platforms they're using, yeah. and this is a never-ending you know, catch-up game of specializing platforms. Right. This is where portable class library kicks in because you can say, no, I give you a general purpose library and that library, you know, is a single binary so I don't have to know which platforms you're targeting hmm. um, and then it will always work the same way. Um, and uh, this is where, where .NET Standard makes things a lot better than Portable because you just have much more API support in .NET Standard than you had in Portable. So you have, you know, much richer .NET APIs and uh, you have also the ability to target newer platforms that didn't even exist at the time you shipped your library. Sure. Which is, uh, I think, a common theme that we will see probably even more moving forward because, you know, we have many yeah. more devices. And, uh, well, and I think C Sharp has become the lingua franca now of all these devices. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm looking at the blog post th- that Rich Lander did back in, in a, a couple just a few weeks ago about the .NET standard library. And it seems to me everybody's hanging on for .NET standard 2. Like that's the one when 
Core right. and Xamarin and UWP are all line up together. Mm. Right. So I guess that question is, when does that happen? Because that sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, like I think from from my team's perspective, it's it's similar to the 2005 release of .NET with 2.0, right? When generics came. Yeah, that's the um, breakthrough. Yeah. Yeah, and I think .NET, you know, version one and one 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 were very usable, right? But with two it really took off, and uh, I think it will be this will be very similar to to .NET standard, where you know the idea is good, it's just not quite there yet, um, and uh, this will be really the, the 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 breaking point where everybody will start using that. Yeah, that's the one where it'll be absolutely apparent. <sighs> I'm. For better or worse, when I look at this list, it's all Microsoft organizations. I guess the question is, is anybody else going to want to comply? Does it make any sense to them? Yeah, so we already had, you know, before we acquired Xamarin, which is fairly recent, I think it's like three or four months ago. Mm -hmm. I forgot, like uh, Xamarin acquisition was relatively recent. And before that happened, we already had an engagement with the Xamarin guys. Um, and it's similar to Unity, which is not a Microsoft entity, right? And so we right. we, we did have a, an active outreach to everybody who participates in the .NET ecosystem as a platform vendor, because it turns out we all trying to reach the same uh, ecosystem in terms of libraries, and uh, on the, especially on the on the Windows side. Visual Studio is essentially the, the primary IDE where everybody wants to integrate into. Um, that was true for Xamarin and it's true for Unity as well. Uh, of course, there's also other IDEs. Uh, Xamarin has their own IDE as well on other platforms. But the idea is, you know, we all have to integrate with each other in so many different pieces that it is worthwhile working with each other to make sure that we have consistency because it makes our own life easier. It makes our customers' life easier and we benefit from each other. So I think generally speaking, Anybody who does have a .NET implementation um, will want to implement this, and we will work with them proactively to make sure they understand what the value is of doing that. And the way we have you know, talked to Unity and Xamarin about this is that the ideas of .NET standard is it's basically a contract for both sides, right? It's a contract for the provider, so they know which APIs they should have support for. And right. it's also a contract for the library author because they can see which APIs uh, should I limit myself too, so I can make sure I run everywhere? And so that's the uh, that's the promise for both sides, and that's why we think it's a uh, you know everybody I think has an interest in doing that. Awesome, yeah, and yeah, huge huge potential here to just I mean really what it comes down to is if you want to be able to let .NET developers build on your platform, get to .NET standard. That's exactly right. And yeah. I mean, from our side, if you look, if you look at the history, I mean, .NET started with uh, a specification, right? I mean, we had the ECMAR 335 and 334 specifications, right, for C Sharp and the common language infrastructure, which essentially, you know, specifies the IL format and all the other things you would need in order to have your own implementation of .NET. Um, and that's the continuation of that, right? .NET standard is essentially in the same spirit as the ECMAR specifications except that it doesn't talk about the runtime or the language, it talks about the API surface, right? That's really what it is. And so we only take it one step further in the sense that we also make the standard itself not just a document, but actually uh, a toolable artifact because it has a version number and we can do a tooling around that um, so that you can actually reason about portability. But it's really in the same vein of saying, you know, we all want to party on the same... Uh, you know, party with the same ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so we all want to agree on how the system works. And that includes the runtime, the languages, but now also the API surface. So what platforms support the .NET standard? 
today? Yeah, so today we have, um, actually, I think it's one of those things that is actually one of the first things that's linked in the, yeah, in I'm the looking, FAQ. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. Um, so essentially, obviously, .NET Core, because that's the most recent thing we have shipped. Right. Um, obviously, also .NET Framework, because that's our primary vehicle for the last 15 years. Sure. And then we also extend this to the Mono side, right? Mono is essentially an open source implementation of the .NET Framework, mm -hmm. so they also support it. Uh, Xamarin, which is uh, for iOS and Android, uh, it's essentially a fork of Mono that is customized for the uh, for the actual uh, you know mobile devices, iOS and Android. So it's, right. a, it's a subset of Mono. It's similar in in the spirit of .NET Core, except that we went more aggressive with uh, you know cleaning it up and having fewer APIs than uh, Mono did. Um, and so yeah, Xamarin iOS, Xamarin Android will be supported. Um, the universal Windows platform uh, is supported with .NET standard, um, and then the existing, uh, you know, the precursors of U of UWP, you know, Windows, Windows Phone, Windows Phone Silverlight, also support uh, .NET standard. So, um, and then the one thing that is not listed in the table because we're still working with them is Unity, which is the uh, you know, gaming runtime. Yeah. So that's pretty much every major, um, you know, actively maintained uh, .NET platform that's out there. I don't ever think of Unity as a .NET platform, but of course it is, right? Because you program in C-sharp with it. That's right. I mean, I think it's slightly... I mean, you can think of, of Unity similar to Xamarin to Mono, right? It's They have their own version of Mono. Uh, they have their own innovations on top of Mono. They have their own native compile tool chain, for example. But uh, they're, they're interesting because, as you said, like you write in C-sharp and you write extensions for that. But a good chunk of the of the of the Unity uh, developers of the Unity uh, consumers, they're not necessarily writing code in .NET, right? They're just using .NET as the runtime for the game, right? And they benefit from all the other things that they built on top of that, like the you know the you know the whole asset management and the uh, you know the physics libraries and all the other components you can just drag and drop in and then have an amazing game. So it's a really cool platform if you have checked it out. It's interesting to think that way that you you start putting GUIs over top of things and other tooling and mm -hmm. it may be dot not under hood, but you never actually see the code or you only see the code when there's something critical you have to do that needs code. Uh, so I think the yeah, as you said it, like I think the interesting thing with Unity is that it's essentially like middleware, right? You don't really care what it's written in. Um but once you actually start customizing it and writing specialized components for it, you benefit from all the uh the goodness that is .NET. It's so easy to extend. It's uh, uh, you know so powerful. You have a nice language. You have great support for compilers and other tools and libraries out there. And um, but it's it's technically like a, you know it's almost like you know, as I said like middleware component. And it's a really interesting uh, platform in that sense. And hopefully we see much more uh, like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's just yeah. It, I I can't help but think of Light Switch, which everybody's pouting about these days but uh you know that's one of those it could have been tooling over top of dotnet standard that it's allowed and generated code under the hood yeah you could do that i mean interestingly enough the the you know the the question always comes up is is dotnet standard the the one platform to rule them all in a sense right and um it's not really that because dotnet standard is really like the bottom piece right it's the it's the it's the set of APIs you want all the platforms to share, but you you would still have you know specific values that each platform adds on top of that, right? I mean, if you target iOS with Xamarin, for example, you still want to have a great experience for interacting with the with the native iOS APIs, right? Which are also sometimes wrapped in .NET APIs, specific 
IDE features around that, like designers and all of that. And so there will always be specific .NET platforms that tailor the whole experience for you. Um, but in the end, you still want to have the ability to say, I know what I can share, uh, but in the end, I don't want the lowest common denominator across all platforms, right? Because you still want to have really the power that the device or the platform, you know, let's say you want to target the PlayStation, or you want to target, you know, the Xbox, you still want to, you know, exploit the power that the specific devices give you. So there will always be specific incarnations of .NET that allow you to do that. Um, and I think that's really the power of .NET that it's so flexible. Yeah. And they will, they will always require some, you know, some sort of customizations on top of that. Yeah. And that's definitely. a good thing. Absolutely. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to open all the windows and smell the fresh air of .NET standard. <laughs> Gee, that, that sounds like a commercial for laundry detergent, don't it? <laughs> yeah, and, it, and they don't have to be windows anymore either, do they? No, that's why we want to open them. You want to let in the fresh air. When I have go. to explain the jokes and they're not funny, then that's <laughs> recipe for disaster. I'm not laughing with you, I man. I'm you're, laughing at you're you. You're laughing at me. I know. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a Sync Fusion Essential Studio to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you what Richard and I like about Sync Fusion. They have over 650 components for web, desktop, and mobile applications, including great native Xamarin controls. They even have enterprise solutions with a dashboard designer and big data platform. Best of all, they're affordable. It's one flat fee for everything. Everyone in the company. No hassle, no gimmicks, and you really get every application with no restrictions. Check them out at SyncFusion.com or look them up on Facebook to see how you can get started today. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is David Specht. Ah, congratulations, David. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah, golf clap for you, David. And David just won the Sync Fusion Essential Studio. That's a great big pile of awesome from our friends over there. If you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you got to sign up to win. Okay, Mo, it's your turn. We like to ask our guests, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Oh, my God. I have so much stuff I want to buy. I'm not even sure 5K <laughs> would be enough. <laughs> uh, so I have, hey, Microsoft, Mo really wants a raise. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so like, in my case, I'm really into photography. So okay. I don't know whether you follow that whole um, thing a bit, but recently, you know, DJI and uh, um, uh, what's the other name? The other camera company, GoPro. Huh. Yeah. So GoPro and DJI, they had a little fight for you know who who builds the best drone. And uh, interestingly enough, like uh, so. I think first GoPro announced a really, really compact drone. I'm like, oh, I really want to buy that drone because it's amazing for aerial footage. It's super awesome. And then I saw the DJI release the drone that's even smaller, even cheaper, even cooler. And now I'm like, oh, damn, like that's mm -hmm. another grind I need to invest somewhere. Like I'm, I'm so excited. I think I will definitely buy one of those guys. And, wow. Yeah, D DJI does the, uh, the Phantom series of drones. Right. That's the, that's the more, uh, you know, the, the older one that's a bit bigger and the new yeah. one is i think called the uh, maven i think yeah. which is the a mavic. super packed one the, yeah, the mavic 
Mavic, it's very yeah, compact. But, but, you know, GoPro, everybody cool. knows them for the cameras. But, yeah, they started making that little Karma drone. And that got yes. people pretty excited. Except they, that I mean, DJI, they're not actually small when you're using them. They fold up. Right. That's sort of their, their win is that they, they can get get smaller. Cool. But, I just think, you know, GoPro is such a well-known brand that they, I can see why DJI got jumpy. You know, they're, they're, mm. DJI is known for their drones, not their cameras. GoPro is known for the cameras and well-known brands. They say, hey, we're going to make a drone as well. That's, that's very threatening. Right. A sudden hit, but I'm with you, you know, and you don't have to spend five grand on a good drone anymore. They're only a thousand bucks. You can get a pretty serious drone. That's true, but as it is with photography, right? Once you have the main device, you want to have, you know, extra batteries, you want to have a pack, and it oh, yeah. quickly almost doubles the price, right? And uh, also, unfortunately, I'm a, I'm a DSLR photographer, so Canon uh, came up with the, with the new 5D, uh, which is oh, actually- You got to get the Mark IV, man. Right. It's a, that's a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> and that's, that's a better part of five grand right there without a lens on it. Uh, yeah. True. Although lenses already have, that's that's fine. But yeah. uh, uh, the camera body looks amazing. So the, that's what um, I would do. Yeah, and Carl and I, I guess a few years ago now, when we were in Ireland, saw a drone carrying a Canon camera. Yep. But it was like a an octo road or something. It was a beast oh, of a drone. It was a big one. Yeah, wow. serious piece of machinery. Hopefully, they got amazing footage. Yeah, I yeah they, they were they were taking footage of the Titanic. Uh, museum there and of course the irish saying for the titanic museum is it was fine when we last <laughs> saw it but uh yeah they so they were doing aerial photography of that it was it, in high wind too and the drone was incredibly steady we were we were quite awed yeah so what's the ultimate goal for dotnet standard where where would you like it to be next year this time so next year this time uh um, it's hopefully released. <laughs> uh, it's in the hands of people. I, I would hope that by the time you already have uh, a good chunk of the NuGet packages uh, converted to make to .NET Standard 2.0, and not just ours, like the communities as well. And um, yeah, .NET Standard is the vehicle that gets you everywhere, and uh, that's the thing that will be a reality hopefully at the same time next year. And not just a, a blog post or a spec. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I've got your, I've added the link to your document on GitHub for the standard. And you, you admit flatly the jump from 1.6 to 2 is like more than double. That is a big jump. That is a huge jump. Yep. We added a ton of APIs based on feedback. And uh, I think it will be, like if you're a library author and you've targeted .NET Standard today, or you tried to target them and gave up, .NET Standard 2 was the thing that may, will make you really happy. Hmm. Absolutely. Should we should we talk a little bit about the inclusion principles? So I think this is a tough thing, especially you know, there was a stink around, wait, you know, should JSON.NET be in or not? Right. Yeah, so the inclusion principles are, uh, I think, you know, there's, a I think, some sort of uh, art involved with an intuition, and then there's also technical aspects involved. Right. I mean, technically, what we want in the .NET standard is the things that are you know, key parts of the .NET platform, right? These are obviously, you know, the primitive types, strings, ins, collections, um, you know, the runtime specific APIs that, you know, realistically you couldn't implement yourself like the GC or mm. some of the interrupt stuff that we have. Um, and then there's also... Everybody a bunch can of write a garbage in- collector, Mo. It's easy. <laughs> Only if you're Chris Sells. <laughs> well, I remember, we remember back in like 2003 where folks was like, I don't trust Microsoft to do my garbage collecting. I'll do my own. And right. you gave them room to do it. And they quickly found out 
it's really hard to make a good garbage collector. And .NETs is Turns great. Out it really is. Oh, that was something um, Miguel said when the, when the whole open sourcing first started. It's like step one: let us go look at this garbage collector because yeah. I don't think Mono ever got as strong in their garbage collecting as the .NET standard framework did. Yeah, I'm pretty convinced RGC is pretty cool. Um, yeah, it's also a single CPP file in case you care. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> the magic uh, is well contained. Yeah, <laughs> it is well contained. Um, so yeah, there's that, right? The the runtime specific APIs, and there's things that uh, you know are more APIs that you need in order to have the vocabulary for libraries, right? If you think right. of the library ecosystem, you also want to depend on a standard to have essentially a way to express yourself, right, and to agree on 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 key exchange types, right? And so a good example here is system data, right? System data is pure MSIL. I mean, if you ignore the providers themselves, right, the SQL or the OLEDB providers. And the core abstractions are all pretty standard, C-sharp, you know, IL, no native code behind it. So mm-hmm. anybody could write them, technically, but it's really cool to have them part of the standard because it means if you, if you want to write something that uses databases, you can you can all agree on what, uh, you know, what the abstract base type should be. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can all use the same data table. And that's the, you know, uh, one of the selectors that we use for the standard. The other part of it is, you know, for the for the JSON.NET, people said, well, everybody wants to use JSON.NET. It should, really should be in the standard. And right. then, you know, the surface seems like a reasonable thing. But the problem with the standard is that uh, be, be, in order to fulfill the promise that is the one thing everybody implements, it also means it will ref, like as far as version numbers go, not super quickly, right? Because right. it can't, right? The whole point is that the platforms implement the standard. Yeah. So it's similar to, I mean, hopefully it's not quite as bad in terms of timing, but it's similar in spirit to, you know, the specification for C++, right? Where they, you know, advance the language and then everybody goes, implements the language features in their compilers. And there's a certain lag behind, uh, you know, until all the languages, all the implementers actually have the support I guess you could have language. compared us to the SQL standard, revving. That would be worse than the C++ yes. one. <laughs> But that's the problem with standards. Right. Right. So, the, uh, I mean, on our side, we hope it's faster than that because the ecosystem is, you know, as far as the inventors, uh, sorry, the, the implementers go, is not as, as large. Yeah. It's slow moving. Um, in fact, everybody else on the .NET side is moving faster than us right now. When you look at .NET framework, that's the slowest target because it is mm-hmm. tied to Windows. But, I mean, like, yep. you know, Mono and Unity are moving relatively quickly. Uh, so I think in practice, the standard will not be super slow, but it will be slower than, let's say, you get a bug report on Monday and by Thursday you want to get out a bug fix, right? That will not work. And so we look at JSON.NET. This thing right now is a standalone NuGet package, which is available to pretty much every platform. So if the guy who maintains it, which who is James Newton King, he's an amazing guy, mm-hmm. if he, he does this thing, right? Somebody files a bug on Monday and then by Tuesday he has a fix for that. <laughs> and in order to do that, he has to be able to publish an update. But, yeah. but how do you do this if your thing isn't the standard? If the thing is actually a standalone NuGet package, well, then you just, you know, do it up, code it up, build it, and then NuGet push your new package to NuGet.org. And then you just reply to the issue and say, here, here's the new version. And then that's it. And so he can publish changes very fast. If you're the customer, you can get those changes very fast. And you don't have to bump your own version of the standard, right? So even right. if we could bump the version number of the standard faster, it doesn't necessarily help you because you still want to run on the same platforms that you run on Monday. Um, but if you would get the fix on Thursday, but you now have to target from, let's say, .NET Standard 2.0 to 2.1, well, maybe the platforms that you want to run on don't support 2.1 yet. Right? So that's right. the whole problem of, uh, you know, if something's on the standard, 
um, you know, change the implementation is somewhat harder. So the other I, reason, I guess, my big concern would be something like a major security vulnerability mm-hmm. that's right. that that that's in there somewhere. But I guess you don't include security vulnerabilities as part of your standard. Yeah, that's, so standard really is about API surface, right? So in right. that sense, my bug fix analogy is not completely sound, right? But the but the the the, the difference really is when you look at security updates, they have a very different mechanism how they get there, right? Because yeah. if you look at uh, you know the way we distribute .NET. Uh, Every single platform has their own version of that. So yeah, let me give you an example. Let's say we have a security issue in one of our, uh, let's say the networking stack, right? So what we do is, well, we ship an update for full framework, which ships on you know Windows Update because it's a Windows component. Um, for other platforms like UWP, which is store-based, we would probably publish the update to the store, and then the store is actually patching the applications, and then the applications are pushed to the device. On the on the Xamarin side, uh, it's similar. We let you know that there's an update, and then you just republish your app to the to the iOS store and similar to Android. So the actual vehicle how security updates get pushed and distributed is somewhat different uh, between the platforms. Yeah, um, and the same is true for you know implementation changes, right? If we have a bug fix, then on full framework, there's probably a KB that you have to install. On .NET Core, there's probably a NuGet update that you can just, you know, update to. Um, but that doesn't really help you in the standard per se if somebody wants to add an API, let's say, right? Sure. That, that, that work. So in that sense, like having NuGet, uh, sorry, having JSON.NET outside of the standard is actually a good thing in the sense that that allows James Newton King to update this as fast as he wants. It allows all the customers to update as fast as they want. Um and that's that's usually a good thing, and that also means for us we don't put everything in the standard either. There are certain components yeah. that have always been on top of .NET, um, and by adding it to the standard, we would have the same problem that James Newton King has. And so we we generally only add things to the standard that are somewhat mature, meaning they don't change very often, uh, or they are just really really required in order to uh, agree on you know how the system should talk to each other. You know, string for example needs to be there even if you would still want to add APIs to it. Yeah, there's some there's a lot of no-brainers like string. Have right. how many um things have there been or APIs have there been that really took a lot of um oh shall we say arguing <laughs> <laughs> strong opinions. Uh, yeah, I recently tweeted that uh Somebody on our side said, our design discussions can be brutal. We should rename our product to .NET Gore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's, yeah, there's you need more artwork that has heads on spikes. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Um, and then, of course, people like uh, had other interesting uh, variations of that word. Um, <laughs> like, interesting enough, though, I mean, everybody on the team has strong opinions, obviously. And uh, yeah. if you have 15 years of uh, technology, but everybody has their favorite pet peeves of things they think they are broken or, or things that are not as nice as they could be. But um, I think there must be APIs that sort of lend themselves to those gray areas that, you know, require the arguments and discussions, whereas something like String, String Builder, those are so plumbing and so self-contained that, that they're, they're a no-brainer. But, you know, what are some of the ones that um, are, are argued about the most? I think on our side, the, the, you, can, you can kind of see this if you just, I mean, I, I don't even have to, like, uh, uh, you know, I would to tell you or not tell you what these areas are. It's very easy for you to find them out because mm-hmm. all you have to do is you only have to div uh, .NET Core with .NET Framework. And look at types they both share, but look at the members that they don't share. And then you know yeah. the ones that we didn't like. <laughs> That's basically one example. An and argument I mean, lies here. <laughs> 
Exactly. There's some argument somewhere here where two people couldn't agree. Um, the biggest area, I think, uh, would be reflection. If you look at .NET Core, ah, sure. when we started .NET Core, we knew we would probably do something like ahead-of-time compilation, meaning you don't JIT, but we generate machine code uh, during the build process. Mm. And one of the key concerns were was if, if we do that, will we be able to have support for reflection? Because when you do ahead-of-time compilation, that kind of requires a system to do static linking, which means we kind of have to know which APIs we need in the output binary. But if you do reflection, well, you know, all bets are off. You could you could invoke anything all the time, right? And so we said, maybe we need to have support for a version of .NET that doesn't have reflection. So we did a bunch of cleanup in reflection, you know, cleanup in quotes, where we re-architected some parts of it in order to make that happen. And uh, that was one of the key areas when you actually port to .NET Core right now, you run into a lot of like differences in the, in the reflection stack. And that's one of the reasons that we changed that in .NET Standard 2.0 by adding all the other reflection APIs back. Because turns out, we can actually have reflection when you do AOT. Xamarin uh, had this for a while. Uh, .NET Native uh, with UWP also has this for a while now. So reflection is not something we, we have to opt out. And then some of the stuff we did, for, we did for cleanup reasons where somebody didn't like that our APIs, let's say, return arrays, they changed the APIs to return typed enumerables. It's just not worth it, right? I mean, the code is 15 years old. There's a ton of code written that uses reflection. And if you move people's cheese and make things incompatible, you just make everybody's life miserable, even if yeah, the yeah. new APIs are, you know, objectively slightly better than the old ones. Well, reflection has always been a bit of a controversial piece of the framework because it's so useful, but it's so slow or has been, you know, in if you, especially if you're using it in a tight loop or anything. Well, that and also uh, one of the things that is on my team always on the on top of mind is the fact that we ship with Windows, right? And yeah. right. there's like 1.8 billion installs of .NET. And so every single time we do anything to the .NET framework, like adding a new API can break an application. And like we have seen cases where, oh yeah, we added an overload to a method where previously there were no overloads. And somebody wrote reflection code that just looked up a method by name, ignoring the signature. Well, guess what? If we add another overload to that, that code will not work so well when you actually yeah, start no just invoking that. Um, and like, uh, so these are all the things that we're like, you know, people, you know, writing reliable reflection code is actually somewhat hard because um, you kind of have to do what the compiler would do at compile time. And uh, people get it wrong all the time. And they also do things that are that are problematic in general, where they, you know, ask for private members and, you know, get values of fields and make assumptions. And then when we change our implementation, the code breaks. Yeah. And so we wanted to minimize that as well. Here's a question. We did a show uh, back in July this year of 2016 with Jeremy Kuhn talking about fixing file path links in .NET Core. Mm. Right. So the .NET Core obviously can handle more than 260 characters. But the normal mm -hmm. framework cannot. What do you do in the standard for that? Yeah, so we will have behavioral differences that are um, observable in principle, but in practice, you may not actually be able to observe them. So good example is if, even if you can know the file length limitation, right? If you just take the semantics of path.combine, right? When you take two strings and you want to concatenate them, right? Two paths. Right. On the Windows side, you insert a backslash. On the Unix side, you have to use a forward slash. And uh, there will be plenty of code that will have hardwired backslashes because it happens to work on Windows, right? And so if that yes. code, you just copy and paste that code over to Linux, that will stop working because you did not actually do it correctly. And yep, Unix really doesn't like backslashes in Path, as it turns out. No. <laughs> um, and Mac pouts about them too. 
And, and so in a certain sense, the APIs were correct. It's just that you can use the APIs incorrectly and we don't necessarily help you in all cases to prevent you from doing that. Right. Um, and so that's one of those areas where it's like a gray area where we say, okay, you know, it's similar to, you know, the C runtime when you call F open, right? You pass a string and, you know, you have to match the operating system syntax for that string. And if you don't, well, then it will not work. And so you can write code that is not portable. But the key is using those APIs, you can also write code that is portable. And if you follow, you know, basic guidelines, your code will work everywhere. Right. Um, now, there will be some APIs where... Um, the the functionality itself cannot be implemented on all platforms. So a good example here is our file O APIs have dependencies on the Windows access control list, so, you know, the ACL, you know, permission uh, model where you can, you know, set permissions on files and directory entries. And they were tied to the same types as, as the core uh, types you want to exchange. And so we could even remove those in the standard, which means even if you only target Windows, there's just no way for you to get the API back in the exact same place. You would have to call some other APIs that would give you the same functionality, which breaks a lot of the code. So that makes copy and pasting code to the core much harder. Right. The alternative would be that we say, okay, we leave the APIs there, and if you run them on Linux, they will just throw platform not supported. And if you run them on Windows, they will work just fine. And it's one of those areas where you have to essentially guard your code and say, if Linux call the APIs, uh, sorry, if Windows call the APIs, otherwise do something else. And um, mm. we try to minimize this because it's kind of like, uh, you know, some people refer to this as like bombs in the code. It's not quite yeah. as bad. And it has always been that way in .NET and other places. So if you, even if you're going to, you know, operating systems, like our stream type, right? You can open a stream over something that is readable or something that is readable and writable. And mm -hmm. so depending on how the stream was created, you can tell by the API whether you can call write or whether you can call read. And so we said for those cases, well, the APIs are there and they may throw not supported because you mm -hmm. opened uh, a file for read, not for write. And so the developers, to a certain extent, are used to the idea that, you know, certain methods might, you know, may throw um, and your code has to handle that or, you know, write your code in a certain way that it doesn't do that. Yeah. Um, but we try to minimize that because the idea is that in the .NET standard, all the APIs that are in there uh, ideally should work everywhere. Um, and so this is, will be a tiny, tiny exception of APIs for which we can guarantee this because the alternative, which would be removing those APIs, would be much it's, worse than just... Yeah, much them. worse. But it's going to make some tricky debugging when it breaks on another platform and that sort of thing. You're going to have to figure out how to shim that. That's correct. Although, yeah. like, even in the early days of .NET, we did usability studies where we said, uh, you know... Uh, what is better, a compile time error or a good exception at runtime? And it turns out if the exception message is good, runtime errors aren't that bad from a right. usability standpoint. You know exactly what you have to do. In fact, in many cases, the exception can give you a better message than a compiler could because you have more context at runtime. Right. Uh, the only downside is obviously that if it's, if it's depending on some runtime state that you don't have tests for or you can't easily replicate because let's say the only thing you have is a Windows box, but it only occurs on Linux mm -hmm. or a specific distro of Linux, right? That can also be the case. Um, then uh, that may be inconvenient. But I think that there's some things in .NET where we, as I said before, right? We try to make .NET really productive and make CrossPlate really productive, but we also don't want to be in the business of like, you know, dumbing it down, right? We want to really say, you know, you're running on the operating system, you provide a thin abstraction over it so that common things will work the same. But in the end, right. you don't really want to like completely hide away that you're running on a, on a Linux machine. It's still observable that if you want to call 
Linux-specific APIs. So in a sense, we cannot completely hide the fact that operating systems have different semantics. And in a cross-platform world, to a certain extent, yeah, part of your test matrix needs to be, does my code run on all the platforms that I intended to run on? And that's just, uh, just something that I think we will see people doing more and more. And all these CCI servers that allow you easily to say, you know, spin this thing on Windows and Linux, for example. So I think that's just something that will, that will naturally happen. I'm looking at, you know, 32,638 APIs to be implemented for .NET Standard 2. And right. thinking, if I'm the guy trying to bring my new platform to <laughs> .NET Standard, that is a pretty big mountain to climb. <laughs> yeah. Keeps you guys busy. Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, so the way I think about it is that if you if you go back, um, you know, four years ago, .NET wasn't open source, right? Yeah, so there right. was if you had to bring up your own platform, you literally read the spec and implement everything by hand, mm, yep. or you're doing what Mono does, and you just use the Mono implementation if you're happy with their license. Um, which is what Unity has done, for example. Right? They didn't write their own, they just started with the mono implementation. Um, and I think moving forward, because we're now open source and you know code is already flowing from .NET Core into mono, for example, like the code bases will get more and more aligned. And I think ideally we eventually reach the point where there's hopefully one code base. And then if there's specific .NET implementations, they will fork that code base and they will tweak that code base ideally in a structured fashion so we can all agree on yes, this one central repository that we all share, similar to how Linux works, right? Nobody really re-implements Linux completely from scratch, right? People use the Linux kernel yeah. and they take some other components and they may tweak them, right? That's why you have different distros, but they don't really start from scratch, right? So they no, have like a bunch of things that they do and then they then they assemble those things. And it will be the same on our side. I mean, you don't really have to implement the 32,000 APIs yourself, hopefully, you just take the .NET Core implementation and tweak it, uh, or you take the Mono implementation and tweak that. And um, so it shouldn't be really uh, a direct, like the amount of API shouldn't be directly proportional to the amount of work you have to do. Yeah, It's more right. directly proportional to the amount of customizations you want to do on top of whatever that baseline is. Taking advantage of your platform. Correct. Yeah. So if the listeners out there are intrigued and maybe want to help and contribute, what in what way can the outside world uh, contribute to .NET Standard? Yeah, so .NET Standard is essentially, like most of the work that we have with .NET Standard right now, it's not the standard itself. I mean, there's essentially one dev right now that is working on the standard. Because the work in the standard really is mostly about defining the... Yeah, the decision part, uh, which is what I'm helping with, but on the on the devving side, it's really more about the tooling, right? Can you, like, how would I actually build a class library that can compile against something, right? right. Like, it's, it can be a Word document, right? There needs to be something you can actually compile against if you want to target the standard. And that's essentially the dev work that needs to happen. But there's, so that's pretty much a one, one-man problem because it's really, you know, not that big. Sure. Um, but... I think from a community standpoint, the thing that they can contribute to is basically our decisions, right? Like, uh, is the standard good? Like, are, they, are we missing APIs we should really have in the standard? Or are there things in the standard that really shouldn't be in the standard? Yeah. And uh, they should they should file bugs for those. Um, but the majority of our coding work right now, which is much more than just one dev, is on the .NET Core side, implementing the standard, right? Because, the as I said, .NET Core is much smaller than the other platforms. And from the you know 30,000 or so APIs that you've seen the standard, uh, a good chunk of them are you know 
are not ported to .NET Core yet. And so we're actually actively working with various people to actually port more stuff to .NET Core so we can actually implement the standard. Um, all the other platforms, you know, .NET Framework, Mono, Unity, they pretty much have zero work to do because they already implement most of the APIs in the standard. Right, As right. As Xamarin was missing like 100 or so, like it was really tiny and they did it basically in two days. And on our side, like we, we actually have to do a lot of work to do that. So that's where the majority of the community, if they want to help, uh, where help would be highly appreciated. How do you validate that you comply with .NET Standard 2.0? Yeah, so what we have today is we have a test suite, which is essentially uh, API compliance. So the question is, do you have the API in the right spot? And is the API binary compatible to what the standard says? Like, do you have the right signature? Do you have the right modifiers? And that sort of thing. Uh, we, we do not have a unit test suite for the standard. So we don't test the standard as in, okay, here's a bunch of behaviors that we want you to follow into. Um, right would like to have that. Uh, the, the reality is that it will be very hard to bring this up because the unit tests are right now distributed across all the different implementations of .NET and moving them to the standard would be a lot of work. Um, so what we will actually do on our side is it's mostly about, you know, if you look at the history of .NET, the Mono guys really wanted to be compatible with full framework. Mm -hmm. .NET Core really wanted to be compatible with full framework. And Unity is a fork of Mono. Xamarin is a fork of Mono. So they're all kind of like trying to be, you know, as close to .NET Framework as possible. And so that's essentially our baseline. And given that .NET Core is mostly built off of code that we port from full framework, we hope that the, the, the behavior is mostly aligned, except for the cases where either alignment is impossible, like, you know, as I said before, it's a different operating system, uh, or we actually want to deviate because we don't want to implement certain things we actively want to throw. Mm. Um, but I think moving forward, uh, I would hope that we will get a common test, uh, you know, common test space where you can actually test your implementation. But given that the number of implementers of .NET is relatively small, um, I don't think that's something that immediately needs to happen. Well, and I can, uh, I just think of it like browser compatibility testing for HTML5. Like you just want to have this sense yeah. that you're knocking these things out and it's working well, you know, and, and it's almost like a burn down chart at that point. Yes. Wow, this is great stuff, Imo. So congratulations and uh, good luck on shipping next year. And I hope uh, you guys get it done. But it's it's all amazing. Everything you guys are doing at Microsoft is amazing lately. Thanks a ton. Um, and uh, yeah, the compliment goes back to folks like you and others who are actively engaging with us, giving us feedback, talking to us. And uh, I have to say, I mean, I've been Microsoft for six years now, but uh, the last two years that we started to do open source and go out on GitHub and appear more on, you know, external shows or, you know, conversations or whatever it is, it, it definitely has been a blast. And I really look forward to at least six more years, maybe even more. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <doing that. laughs> awesome. We are, definitely. Well, thanks again, and we'll see you next time. I'm .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one 
recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...